Welcome to another edition of our Honest Series for the City Business Festival. This program is brought to you by APSA Bank and the Ghana Investment Promotion Center. Today we are talking about how to attract investment and what makes Ghana stand out as an investment destination. And the man I have for this segment is a man I affectionately call Ghana's Chief Marketing Officer <laughs> because his job is to make everybody put money in Ghana and let the money stay here. Is Yofi Grant. Yofi, great to have you again. Good morning. Hi, good morning, Bernard. How are you? I hope you're keeping safe and well. Yes, indeed. Look, this must be a busy time for you because it's like we've gone around a certain curve and we are trying to get back to normal. How has it been like for GIPC in this time? Well, it's been, it's been um, uh, as much a challenge as an opportunity, of course. You know that once COVID hit globally, then the lockdowns and the closure of borders meant that um, people couldn't go to business as usual. And the, the prime objective of almost every country and every government was first to preserve lives um, and then uh, and preserve lives. And then secondly, to preserve livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And that is where um, the challenge is, that, that the livelihoods part, because as much as you want life to go on as usual, um, there's a, an inherent risk of that happening and people, more people getting infected. Well, the statistics are telling us that, well, maybe as 80% of people who catch this virus um, should be okay. Um, but there is some um, 5 to 6% who are more vulnerable um, in the sense that either age is not on their side or they might have comorbidities that make uh, treatment of the virus more, uh, almost impossible and then um, they, they can't pass out of that. So mm-hmm. that in itself meant that you had to even if you, you, you need that 85 to 6%. And mm-hmm. the only way to protect them is to ensure that everybody stays at home, wears their masks, washes their hands, uh, you know, are not coughing all over the place freely. Um, and, you know, just the, 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 the basic hygiene uh, protocols that have been articulated. And in Ghana, we, we started pretty early uh, closing our borders and going to a lockdown pretty quickly. Uh, but the nature of the virus, because it has no cure and the rapidity with which it infects, Mm-hmm. meant that sooner or later we'll get to a point where unless you have a cure or you have a, um, a, a vaccine that stops it in its tracks, it's going to go round and round and round and round and round. Unless everything comes to a standstill. And everything mm-hmm. can come to a standstill. Because we are a country that um, we are, we are we're plugged in into the global economy. Um, we are a country that imports quite a lot, but we also do export. Um, we are a country that is on the cusp of, you know, achieving what we've always wanted to. And I, I dare say that prior to, to COVID, I mean, Ghana was probably on a roll. Um, it was one of the countries that was showing real positive uh, fundamentals. Um, uh, even debt to GDP still looked good, um, despite the fact that, you know, we borrowed. And of course, the borrowing was for good purpose. So we were a very attractive um, country. In, indeed, if you look many of the reports, Ghana was um, touted as the best place to invest in West Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, now, why is that? First of all, I mean, I would like to, my, my brag sheet opens to the fact that Ghana is in the center of the world. Mm-hmm. We are the only country on latitude zero and longitude zero. And definitely that counts for everything if mm-hmm. you're in the middle. I mean, for logistics, for movement, for everything. I mean, to, to the Americas, um, if you're going to South America, if you're to be going direct, it could be only a four and a, to a five-hour flight. If you're going to North America, maximum eight hours. If you're going to Europe, six hours. So we, we were in a good p- 
or we are in a great position for trade and business. Mm-hmm. But that's not all. I mean, we have been known and are credited with our, our, should I say, political credentials of being a very stable political um, country. Mm-hmm. That politically, we are pretty stable and we've maintained that stability for quite a while and uh, gives hope to a lot of the continent. Bear in mind that Ghana's political pedigree goes right up to 1957 when we had, we were the first sub-Saharan African country to gain independence for the colonists. And then we also mm. triggered a wave of uh, political um, independence on the continent. And, and therefore, Ghana almost became like the inspiring black wand of Africa, um, that once you swing it, then things are going to happen. And I think 60, um, 63 years later on, we've repositioned ourselves as that same inspiring country in Africa's economic um, emancipation and engagement. Mm-hmm. I mean, from proclaiming a Ghana beyond aid, which resonates very well politically and economically with most African countries, um, to actually being one of the fastest growing economies in the world three years running, um, speaks volumes of where we are as a country. So mm-hmm. that political stability and, and the, the, the efforts we've made in the economy, um, uh, be average, average growth rate um, over the three years is some 7%, which is one of the fastest in the world. Um, indeed, the IMF and the World Bank projected that in 2019, Ghana would be the fastest growing economy in the world. And we, we did achieve a comparatively high growth rate of 6.5%. And this year, we were actually projecting 6.9%. And we're well on track till COVID's track. So we definitely have done some things right. And um, it's on the back of many things. Um, not the fact that you know, we, we embarked on a very, um, should I say, strong exercise of fiscal consolidation to bring back the economy to stability early in 2017 and um, have some you know, reprofiling of our debts to ensure that we were not paying those huge amounts upfront, but we spread it. We actually spread our, um, uh, our borrowings over a longer year. And Ghana, once again, was the first sub-Saharan African country to go for a long-term debt of 41 years. But not just that. We had probably one of the best pricings that we've had ever um, in going out for debt. So mm-hmm. we have shown that on the economic front, we are doing the right things. On the okay. political front, yes, political stability, which every investor wants to see, um, you would find it in Ghana. Just a quick question around the political stability. I know that um, the the risk premium that Western markets place on Africa sometimes is unfairly skewed. And for a country like Ghana, which has had at least 20-something years of a stable democracy, our risk premium should be lower in terms of the risk they place on lending to us. But it appears, if you compare Ghana to an average poor country in Europe, they still make... They priced our loans a bit higher than those countries, even though our democracy is a bit more stable. What can we do to change this? Because this is something that has come up in lots of conversations around why for a country like Ghana with such stability, we still have to pay a bit more for the the loans we get than other countries in different parts of the world. Well, first of all, I mean, every country has got got to get its rating done. I mean, you've got to be rated. And there are agencies that are doing these sovereign ratings. Um, You know, Standard & Poor's you know, uh, Fitch, um, and, and quite a number of... Moody's, Moody's. And Moody's. You know, so they come in, they have a look at your economy, 
Um, and they don't only do it on the basis of what it is now, but predictability in your economy. And then they grade you and they rate you. Uh, what I must say, though, is that over the past three years, Ghana had, um, for the first time in quite a while, a re-rating upwards. It was B negative, and then it got to B plus, um, stable. Um, so COVID came and it was re-rated backwards. The, the, the sad thing is that the, the lenders don't care what the situation is. They just look at the figures and the technicality of it and, and rate you. But yes, I mean, depending on how you are rated, your, your sovereign rating is, then you fall within a certain bracket of, um, of, of, of what your lending can be. And, and I must say that that's why I said I went for the longest. And the, Ghana being able to borrow first at 30 years and then 41 years was a stamp of... Um, credibility and confidence in the international markets. Um, what we were looking at is to go uh, from the B plus to a B plus plus and become even more credit worthy or have a better rating. And that will put us there to uh, borrow, um, for, borrow for um, a lower interest rate. Now, I, I, I said that it's not much more the history, but there's also a component of the history that you must, over the years, demonstrate stability, macroeconomic stability. And if they, they try to look at it and says, well, I want to see what your 10 years profile is like, what your five years profile is like. And so they use that also in, in giving you the right. So although you are doing everything right, um, they want to look on the long term because you go to the markets and borrow long term. And they look at your economy and how your economy is going to grow. And you have to convince them that, yes, you're going to grow. And um, I think Ghana was well on track um, to um, getting a good rating. And a quick point there. Doesn't our competitive politics sometimes affect this because one of the things foreign investors look out for is what they call sanctity of contracts and some level of predictability. And the, you know that the way we do our politics, you know, position, you see everything wrong with what the government is doing. In government, you see everything right. Sometimes when a new government comes, certain terms are varied, certain contracts are altered. And we've seen some in the energy sector. Does that not make your work harder so if somebody wants to do a large-scale investment in the extractives and yet they listen to what the rhetoric of the position is and they say, look, because we are not sure who's going to win the election, if we can't lock this in, we'll do a shorter-term contract and therefore the, the, the willingness to put certain amounts of money in is reduced. Well, the, 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 your answer has both sides of the equation. Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that it will affect you because people want predictability and they want sanctity of contracts. But sanctity of contracts does not mean that you can sign any you know, crazy contract that is not legal or illegal or confers a sweetheart deal and then call that and, and maintain that as a, as a sanctified contract. That, that is an absolute no. And I'm sure you remember, even in the U.S., some time back, um, when um, uh, was it a, an Arab company wanted to um, invest in one of their ports, their main ports, the government said no won't allow that to happen. And you, you remember that there are other um, situations where investors have been stopped for one reason or the other um, that are political. And they don't necessarily mean that, therefore, it is bad. No, in the sense that um, sometimes they go beyond the politics. They want to see what you are actually doing. And, they, you, and it's how much you still confidence in them that you know what you're talking about and you know what you're going to do. And mm. in Ghana, I think Ghana over the past three years has demonstrated, first of all, coming in the first year and then um, rectifying um, um, what I would say was a, a poor economic um, position uh, was, was a surprise and a, a welcome news to a lot of the rating agencies. I mean, 
in 2017, by the end of 2016, and this is just about the numbers, it's not about the politics, it's just about the numbers. By 2016, our GDP growth had slumped to 3.6%, the lowest in 22 years. And this is after we have found oil and we had had our highest GDP um, 2011 at 14% um, GDP growth. So to have that trend of it dropping downwards, of course, would have been a worry for every lender. Mm. But in one year, that was reversed. And in 2017, GDP growth went up to um, um, 8.1%. Apart from that, many things were were changed. The uh, debt to GDP was reversed from 73%, Mm. came down below um, 60% to some of the 50s. um, the deficit was reduced drastically from 9.3%, came down mm. to below 6%. Interest rates dropped from the mid-30s and came to the lower 20s. Um, and uh, inflation dropped to single-digit figures. So all, all these things are, are okay. welcome to the who wants to rate you. Now, if you can, if you can sustain that over a, a certain number of years, then your rating becomes better. But of course, um, they are also aware that if there are contracts which were not right or were criminal or had some questions about them. It's, it's a political right of every government to question Fair enough. those. Okay, so you've mentioned yeah. certain things. Best uh, place to invest in Africa, center of the world, historical sentimental reasons, GDP growth, fastest growth, and all of these things. We also know that when somebody wants to invest, they want to turn a profit. So the cost of doing business must be low. The people must be hardworking. And it mustn't be difficult for them to repatriate their profits. But that's where your problem arises because now with a large population that's growing, young people looking for work, sometimes what you promise the investor, you may not be able to deliver all because there are certain local factors that impinge against the amount of profit they can make. How do you ensure that you get the right type of investment in, but also build the local capacity and also solve the local problems you want to do with that investment? Right. I, I think there's a misconception there that every investor is here to rape and loot and get out. And this is not true. If you look at the Ghana economy, um, over the past few decades, um, some of the leaps and bounds we've had have come from foreign direct investment. For example, in the technology space with mobile phones, etc., mobile telephony, even in the banking space. It's only recently that we have a good um, number of local banks coming. Most of it was from foreign direct investment. In, in, in mining, a lot of the development there was from foreign direct investment um, in hospitality, the same. Um, but now we, we are looking at empowering our people also to be able to grow up to become investors. And for me, I look at investment not as an activity, but as a relationship. And that relationship means that you must entrench yourself in the system where you are with the local people, the local market, and, and the local value chains. And that is how you get um, a sustainable investment case. And so for us, when we go out now, we go with private sector people. So they go and meet the investors, do their transactions and deals and get private sector dealing with the investors direct, whilst we also do our bit of bringing the bigger investors who will come into the market. The truth of the matter is that over the many years, um, Ghana as a country, we've not fostered capital formation um, in, in, the structures, in the structure we, for many years. And so... It's difficult. If I came today, I said, well, let's look for a Ghanaian investor who would find $200 million to do railways or something. You, you would be hard to find it. But if you, if, you, if you bring somebody from outside of the country, says, I can give you a Ghanaian partner who can enable you to negotiate the nuances of the market much faster, much smoother 
and help you uh, uh, get the business going, they would understand. And my experience is that a lot of the foreign direct investors who come into this country, after they've been in for a year or two, always prefer to work with local people. Because one, it costs them much less. They don't have to now go and look for a house and school and this and that for, for the partner. Um, if if they, they employ Ghanaians, they, they already live here, they, they sort their lives out, they pay them. And then they also train them and get them to manage the business. So I've seen quite a number of foreign direct investors, um, investments where the management has, you know, transited to indigenous people, Ghanaians. And if I can give you a typical example, and this is not an advert for them, but if you look at ShopRite, ShopRite, as I understand, is almost managed exclusively by Ghanaians now. Um, it's just maybe one or two expatriates. Um, but they are doing business. They are doing good business. The Ghanaians are also learning their business. And the Ghanaians are getting more Ghanaians engaged in the value chain with their supplies and supplying Ghanaian stuff into the shops uh, instead of them coming straight from outside okay. in South Africa. So it's an engagement. It's a partnership that you, you need to negotiate and negotiate it well. Um, but I think under a Ghana Beyond Aid, we actually uh, are driving the impetus to engage Ghanaians more. And I think that some of the policies that recently we have put in place um, energize a lot of Ghanaians to do that. But for me, the, the most important thing also is to have a preparation of um, well-heeled Ghanaian business people. Uh, I keep saying sometimes that we are great entrepreneurs. Um, we need to be great business people as well. So you mentioned capital formation locally, which I think is a big point. The concern is that we haven't developed the class, the, the, the capacity to build the capital that we ought, partly because our financial institutions are predominantly foreign-owned. And there's a view that even with the recent reforms in the financial sector, it's more so foreign-dominated. Before the financial sector reform, we had mm -hmm. more Ghanaian financial institutions private than we have now. So if you look at what happened pre-2017 to what has happened now, fewer private sector financial institutions, whether they are banks or savings and loans, exist. A lot of the companies that went down were Ghanaian private-owned. My question is that, on the basis of that, mm -hmm. if somebody wants to put money into the economy, the priorities they have may be different from the priorities you have as a country. I'll give you a good example. In the past 15 years, most of our GDP growth has come from cocoa, gold, timber, and export of raw materials. The growth of manufacturing has been very poor. This government wants to do one district, one factory, wants to boost manufacturing. It may not be the priority of a foreign investor to manufacture here. So my question is, if you have a strong local bank that believes in 1D1F, they will put money to support somebody to do like Ecojuice factory. But if somebody has money, he may want to invest it in tourism. So how does the weakness of our financial capital formation affect our ability to meet our investment needs, like investing in manufacturing, as an example? Businesses don't only grow up because they are financial institutions. On the contrary, financial, uh, financial institutions grow up on the back of businesses. So it's not that, it's, not, it's the other way around. And um, the issue of priorities of a financial um, institution lies in the ability to make money in business. If you had great Canadian companies who are here were doing business, and it's happened before, where we had Coles Motors, we had Tata, 
all these were Ghanaian enterprises and they were the blue chips. And they were big companies. In those days, maybe the few foreign companies you'd have seen would have been Unilever, UAC, the traders. But in the manufacturing space, they were Ghanaians. And the banks were supporting them. So it's not about where the bank comes from. Any bank that comes and sees a great business opportunity in the business will support that side of it. The thing is, we haven't deliberately groomed and grown Ghanaian businesses for a while. And that is the real problem because the banks will finance them. In the oil and gas industry today, you have Ghanaians who are major players in the logistics and the value chain. And they are financed by the banks. And they will become the future investors. So the issue is, how do we get our Ghanaian businesses to grow and become bigger? It's a, it's a combination of um, government support and creating a class of entrepreneurs who would migrate and progress to become business people, who would then grow and migrate to become investors. And um, I, I dare say, um, and I, I, I'm yet to be corrected because I haven't looked at the numbers very well. We predominantly um, buy and sell economy. It's only recently that the, the edge and the drive to industrialize has come out very strongly and get away from what um, um, our current president said is, is a Gajisberg economy, where it was all about exporting raw materials and resources, where we didn't need a cater of well-heeled business people. Because all you needed to do was to get cut the cocoa, dig the gold, whatever, and export it. But now, with the whole plan of first re-educating our people, such that in the medium term, the average education level of a Ghanaian will be beyond high school, you are creating more responsible cater of people who can engage at the higher levels of the value chain. And on the back of that, then you start an industrial policy. For example, the one district, one factory, which is putting... Um, uh, a manufacturing facility in each of the 260 you know, um, districts that you have. That in itself will give Ghanaians the opportunity to then start from a, a low-level manufacturing and gradually migrate to a higher-level manufacturing. But also the fact that you can get Ghanaians partnering with foreigners or foreign direct investment in some of the high-value ends are, are, are important. And you did say that, yes, our economy grew on the back of cocoa, etc., but the actual growth, if you look at it, has been services. There's been a lot of growth in services. Industrial, industrial growth came down, went up, but it was because of mining, not because of value addition industry. Um, if you look at agriculture, at a certain point, our agriculture was almost in recession. It was growing negatively because everybody left that to go into services, buying and selling, because it was quick money. But it didn't build as much wealth because the goods and services that we're selling were all imported. But now we have a chance to say, okay, so we have all these, Ghana is resource rich. Um, we have all these things. We have gold, timber, diamonds, bauxite, iron ore, lithium. Um, we have timber. We, we, we have oil and gas. How can we get Ghanaians to also get in there and make and build capital? And once they build capital, then they will become investors. The most likely place to invest first is in Ghana. So it's, it's not... Uh, 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 you can't chop one side and say that's the problem or that's the solution. It's a transition. And if you look at countries that have transitioned in all these things, like Korea, like Singapore, um, they were much, not very much different from Ghana. But they had a strategy um, to go in a certain direction. For example, if you want to talk of production in Ghana, even if you want to go um, uh, to industrial manufacturing, 
and you compare total factor productivity in the Ghanaian to the total factor productivity of the Chinese or the Korean, they are miles apart. So training is important. And it's not because of the, the financing, not necessarily. I mean, there was a time when a lot of Ghanaian uh, businesses were financed, but it led to, eventually led to a collapse of Ghana Commercial Bank. And then they had to do non-performing recovery assets trust because the bank had virtually collapsed. So I, I think we are starting from a good foundation and building it up. And um, I, I think that um, it's important that we understand the progression. And it won't be no, I, a sudden... I, 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 I agree. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that a government and a country has priorities. And mm. the issue of capital formation is clear, but financing mm. is also important. And yes. it's easier for banks and financial institutions to support, particularly in COVID times, right? In the COVID era, right? So if the president says, yeah. for example, right now, I want to build capacity in the pharmaceutical sector. We should manufacture all our vitamin C and paracetamol here. And he asked all our top pharmacies to come together. If we had the institutions that would buy into that vision, because you see every country around this period is trying to solve their own problems first. So if you have banks that say, look, Mr. President, we agree with you on this vitamin C, paracetamol thing, we are going to give money to uh, all these pharmaceutical companies, then the equation works easier. So if you don't build the financial capacity of your, your financial institutions, it will be more difficult to support these strategic anchor sectors that the president may want to, want to push. Yes, but Bernard, you're right on that. But the financial capacity doesn't necessarily mean it must be indigenously owned. Like I told you, I mean, I, I was a banker before I went to investment banking. And I remember one of my um, uh, tutors when I went on a course in England um, used to tell me, you know, banks are greedy. We don't care where we come from or where we go. What we care about is we make our money back. And it's stuck in my head. And it's, 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 it's true. The, the problem that you are voicing is that the local capacity in our financial system or indigenous capacity in our financial system is inadequate. And yes, I do agree, it's totally inadequate. Um, and recently, you, you, you know that the financial system has undergone some restructuring. Now, that restructuring was essential, or not even essential, critical, because these were financial institutions that were on the verge of collapse. And had they collapsed, then the, and, and had they collapsed en masse, if they had not been stopped, it would have even been more catastrophic to shareholders and a lot more people would have found themselves losing their lives, savings, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, I think that local, and I have heard the president say almost all the time that he wants Ghanaian banks to rise, to rise and rise. He wants Ghanaian ownership of their banks. But that must be done according to the rule and law that the Bank of Ghana um, sets up. Bear in mind, Bank of Ghana is Ghanaian. I don't think it's not in their interest to have local-owned banks. It is. But it's more in their interest to have, make sure that there's a strong and um, robust financial system that can support an economy in transition. And, um, and, mm. and that is not just about having local banks. It's having access to finance, whether okay. from outside or inside. Fair enough. Let, let's look at markets. So we have ECOWAS, 400 million. Mm. Africa, 1.3 billion. And mm. then, of course, we have the rest of the world. What is your view about how to target? Should, should we start in our heads distinguishing between how to attract the, the, the ECOWAS market before we develop for the African market? 
and then before because of course china and japan can do a lot of things better than we can at this time so in our strategy should we be have this sort of tiered approach in terms of our um targeting west africa later on africa and then globally is that should that that's, that's that sort of mindset in this in this thing yes yes definitely and, and i'm sure you know that ghana was one of the major inspirations between the continental free trade area agreement um the fact that africa in itself uh, presents a huge opportunity in terms of market and therefore if if we're going to go industrial first of all we are in ECOWAS. Uh, we are in a regional body and we have the ECOWAS treaty and the ECOWAS uh, protocols that will enable us, if we manufacture it, to export and import uh, tariff-free in the ECOWAS region. That's a major opportunity for us. So for us, the important thing is how do we get manufacturing capacity? Uh, and that's why the One District One Factory was important, to start nurturing a new group of industrialists um, that will then grow into major industrialists. And in, an industrial growth doesn't happen from zero to the top. We, we can't be at the high end of the technology end because we don't have it here. But some of the things that we consume ourselves, we can make. And um, I, it's, it's the sense of pride that I say that, well, in this COVID area, um, some of the PPE that were, that were in high demand in the market, the local environment uh, provided them from sanitizers to alcohol, to coverall, to masks, you know, and even brought a fashion sense to masks um, and, and created another opportunity. So, those are all things that you need to think about um, putting it together. And yes, you did mention, we have a great unique opportunity for Africa. Let me tell you something. By 2050, Africa's population will be one quarter of the world's population. It's estimated that 60% of that population, by then it should be about 2.5 billion. Our 60% of that population will be below the age of 35. It tells you that this is a huge demand market waiting to be exploited. But not only that, Africa has um, at least 30% of the world's mineral resources, including lithium, which is, which is going to be highly sought for in uh, Industry 4.0. That is a technological age where, you know, the computers, phones, etc., are the main instruments of transactions. And so Africa has a great opportunity for investment as well as the market. And then apart from that, 60% of the remaining arable land that will be left in the world will be in Africa. So Africa can feed the world. But yet still, this is a continent that is extremely rich in resources, but the people are not wealthy. Now, how do we create that wealth if there's a market waiting within the continent to be exploited? We ourselves need to work, manufacture here for that same market. But we can even go beyond. I, I recently had a, a very lengthy conversation about the European Partnership Agreement, the EPA. And I was telling one of the Europeans that, well, I mean, I, I, I believe that Ghana presents a, a very attractive investment opportunity and, uh, and platform and foundation for anybody. Um, but, I mean, for, for, for Europe, I think this is a unique opportunity. If you want to export into Africa, Ghana is a place that you should be. We provide you with all the incentives, we provide you with everything, and so you can actually manufacture here for this market. We don't have to then start importing from Europe where we can export from Ghana the same goods. Now, mm. if you want to do that and want to sustain that market, partner with Ghanaians. You will have your products out faster. You know, for me, that, 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 is, that is a strategy that will also work. And okay. so even as, as 
we are trying to become industrial, we must recognize that the market is right here. Or okay. we, we are an importing nation. We, we are even importing food when we can grow all our food. And so that is why you have a policy like um, growing for uh, food and jobs, which will bring about food security. And a country that doesn't have food security, I'm afraid, is at the mercy of everybody else. But if you have food security, you can feed yourself. You can take your own decisions in that area. And so right. that is another let, let me Let me end with a, a very interesting historical comparison. So I have here in front of me FDI inflows for the January 2008 to December 2010 period by industry. So this is the 2008, 2009, 2010. So this is like a decade ago. So what I want to read for you is 10 years ago where we were, and then you can give me what we've done in the past three years in comparison. So for example, in that 10-year decade period, in terms of value, the highest FDI came from services, 35%. The second was building and construction, 33%. And then the third was general trading, 14%. Okay, in terms of percentage of total value of FDI 10 years ago. So 35% service, 33% building and construction, 14% general trading. Would you say that this ratio would change significantly 10 oh, years yes. yes, it will change significantly. Um, it, it will change significantly in proportions. But, okay. um, but still, I mean, there is significant opportunity in the resources side. For example, oil and gas. And you know, one project in oil and gas, like the recent one that was signed, was um, a total, it's a project of the size of 10 billion. Mm -hmm. um, so that one project could overshadow quite a number of others. But I see, I see a lot of, and I, I'll tell you some interesting observations that we made. Um, that this um, last year, for example, um, in 2019, mm -hmm. um, services mm -hmm. um, had the largest proportion okay. of FDI. Um, Which is still the same. It's still the same because here's 35 of the, of the yeah. chart. 35 for service. Yeah, but, but, was but, yes, that was last year. But I'm seeing a lot more um, um, that in the first quarter of this year, mm -hmm. um, the FDI we had was 400% the first quarter of last year. But mm -hmm. most of them were in industry because of one industry, one factory. Suddenly okay. everybody wants to be there. So okay. you, had, um, you had like, for example, you have VW wants to be there. You have mm -hmm. Sinotruck who wants to be there. And indeed, I've been told that the first assembled um, Ghanaian T1 is already out, uh, but it's not on the streets, but it's been, it's been put together. Mm -hmm. So, and we are seeing that. We are seeing uh, companies now going to cassava for alcohol. We're seeing some coming to sugar. We're seeing a sugar estates being put up in the north. So we are seeing people now migrating to industry because they see the opportunity for export. Mm -hmm. um, services was growing because then a lot of the services didn't require highly skilled um, labor. Um, and, and for example, we had a surge in hotels. And then we had a surge in the banking sector, which then trained a new cadre of highly skilled Ghanaians. Then we had mm -hmm. technology, mm -hmm. which was also services. They trained a new set of people. Now, a lot of the young people you meet on the streets just don't look for a job. They look for an opportunity. Some of okay. them want to do their own business, go into manufacturing. Um, I, 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 I keep saying, I keep one of my greatest joys was um, in 2016 when I met a bunch of young people who, uh, who were graduates from an Greek college and had no jobs. And they came to me and said, well, why should they vote for party X or party Y? Um, because, you know, um, they, they, they've been to school, they've been looking for jobs, they can't look for jobs. And I told them that, you know what? 
opportunity. First of all, look for opportunity. You guys, you want a job. Look for an opportunity. And for you, I see a great opportunity because Ghana is an agric, um, basically an agricultural nation. And there are so many um, farms coming up, smallholder farms. Mm. And then at that time, we knew that there was going to be this one dam, one, one yeah. village, one dam. Yeah. So I told them, look, you guys are smart. Why don't you put yourself together and then start advising the smallholder farms? And to be a volume business, because most of you mm. already are in the interior. You have access, you have smart feet. You can so you're it. saying that if I went back 10 years, and even though 10 years ago, manufacturing was very small, 5.7, agriculture 7.5, based on the policies introduced within the past couple of years, the chunk of the investment from manufacturing by way of value would have been a bit larger than the 5%, as would agriculture. I expect that to happen. I expect that to happen in the next few years, that we'll see some big chunks come in. Now, I'm, talking about mind, I'm talking about what's happening now. No, I'm talking about what's happening now. Because um, it's, I'm taking uh, you 10 years back. I'm saying 2010 to 2020, mm -hmm. that's 10 years. Will the equation yes. have changed significantly? Or has um, it changed? That's what I mean. Has it changed? It hasn't changed significantly, but like I said, it is changing. And I'm expecting that in a year or two, we'll see a major change in that. Because if you look at, if you look at, um, um, for example, um, um, the, the numbers as mm -hmm. of 2019, um, you will see that services still was the large one, but manufacturing was the second largest. Okay. Okay. Ahead of building, building construction. Okay. Um, general paper is still there, but manufacturing was the second largest. And it's, okay. it's the rate of growth in manufacturing is, is higher, it's is faster than the, the, the rate of growth in the Fantastic. services. As, Fantastic. You know, so I, I expect that to change. Uh, for me, the real, uh, the real interest is that how can we motivate and incentivize Ghanaians to get into that space of the higher value end mm -hmm. of manufacturing? And mm -hmm. um, I say so also once again with pride that I, I noticed there's a nascent um, chocolate industry coming up locally. They are, still, they are still small, but we are going to see them grow like we've seen Nishkoko grow. Mm -hmm. Five years, ten years ago, you probably wouldn't have heard of Nishkoko. But today it's there. It's big. It's going to be there. We see artisanal chocolate manufacturers actually getting international markets because of what they're doing. And that's how it's going to start growing. You know, Fantastic. we're seeing factories um, being set up to do other agri-processing. For example, we are seeing, and for me, um, one of the other points of pride is um, a company that when we were much younger, we used to see um, produce juice in the market, a company called Aztec. For years, that company was under. It virtually collapsed. Recently, mm -hmm. they are re, uh, reviving to come back to the market bigger and stronger. And that is a major motivation that, yes, we can do it. We can do stuff here. Mm -hmm. I mean, COVID has shown us that given the impetus, given the motivation, and given the space, the private sector will perform. Great. You know, and so how to incentivize our local people um, if they do not have the capital, then they should attract foreign direct investment to partner with them. Mm. And once they do that, then they create that whole, you know, foundation for an industrial resurgence. And then we, believing that we are the headquarters of the CFTA, should mm -hmm. be able to engineer our way to creating a bigger market for our indigenous products. Fantastic. And so I, there is a great strategy to it. And I think that that strategy has been initiated. And I, I would urge our, our listeners to be encouraged and to be motivated that yeah, I think the Ghana of tomorrow will be great. Um, the, the foundations have been laid. And had COVID not come, 
I am sure that would have been seeing a country well on the way. Um, I mean, and, and interestingly, everywhere we go prior to COVID, when we travel anywhere, international conferences, etc., whenever you mention Ghana, everybody tends to ask, okay, what's happening in Ghana? Mm. You know, because I think that the messaging has been good. I, I think that the country has done quite a number of right things. And uh, we just need to capitalize on those right things and go on. I mean, and, and the last point I want to make, if you look at, if you look at the, the, the global uh, uh, the impact of the pandemic, for example, I mean, it's, it's and you look at predictions of where the, the world um, um, GDP growth will be. Global GDP in 2019 was 2.9%. Uh, uh, Pre-COVID, the projection was that it would go to 3.3. Now, with a COVID position, in, uh, COVID-19 projection, is minus 3.0. Mm. That is going to be a global recession. Um, if you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, um, 2019 uh, was 3.1% uh, GDP growth. Um, Pre-COVID, it was uh, projected to grow to 3.6%. percent mm -hmm. The COVID projection by the World Bank puts it at minus 1.6. Mm, mm. If you look at ECOWAS, 2019 uh, growth was 3.6%. Pre-COVID projection was, um, was 3.8%. Uh, the COVID projection is minus 1.4. Wow. If you look at Ghana, 2019, our GDP growth was 6.5%. The pre-COVID projection was that to go to 6.8%. COVID projection is positive 1.5%. So even against all the regions, whilst everybody's going to rece recession, Ghana will still have positive growth, although it has shrunken from 6.8% to 1.5%. And that in itself is, is commendable that at least we are doing some things that if we put in place a certain machinery, the recovery might be stronger than in most other places, and we can get back to where we were before. And it's all a question of policy. It's all a question of thinking and the motivation and the vision to see this country as um, where we want it to be. And, and, and so I, I am very happy that at least that foundation has been laid. And Ghana Beyond Aid tells us that we should be motivated. We can do it with our own resources in partnership with other people. To be the Singapore, the Switzerland of Africa, we can do it. Great stuff. And we wish you Godspeed in this very important job you do for the country. Yofi Grant, CEO of GIPC, we thank you not just for the sponsorship, but also for the resilience and the opportunity <laughs> you used to do your work. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bernard. And stay safe. Great. So we've been talking to CEO of GIPC, Yofi Grant, as ever optimistic and buoyant about the prospects for Ghana. This has been another edition of our honest series for the City Business Festival. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.